and welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am the priest, Carl Stevens. And I am the rabbi, Daniel Bogard. And today we are joined again by a popular favorite, the great Robin Holland. Hi, Robin. Hi, I'm glad to be here again with you. And Robin, I will say that you are the guest who other guests compare themselves against. So uh, oh with my. with other guests, are, they're usually very insecure. We're like, you'll do great. You're brilliant. They'll be like, oh, but Robin Holland, she set a pretty high, <laughs> pretty high bar, pretty high standard. That's undue. I've listened to all of your other guests and they've been very interesting. So I, I think that's a little undue. <laughs> yeah, well, we are okay. very glad to have you back. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. I've listened to all the podcasts, and I, I missed being here. I sometimes would be at home wanting to jump in, so oh, today I actually do get to jump <laughs> yes, in. Yes, you do. You do indeed. Um, and speaking of jumping in, should we jump in without any more ado, or there is there some housekeeping we need to take care of first, Daniel? I think we can jump in. Chapter 13. Awesome. Uh, Robin, as our guest, do you want to read... Sure, I'll read, and I am reading the NRSV version, Okay. Um, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Okay, Consecrate- so if we can pause there for a moment, just as a uh, reminder to our listeners who listened to last week's episode, whenever we hear that phrasing, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, almost certainly we're about to get priestly material. Okay, yeah. So continuing. Please. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the Israelites of human beings and animals is mine. Keep going. So is there a tradition with this in the Christian world? Does this turn into any ritual, anything? The consecration of the firstborn? Yeah. Um. I mean, the the only thing I can possibly think of, and Robin, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, of course, Jesus is consecrated. There's a whole presentation in the temple. Um, so that entire Holy right, day. yeah, that entire right of Corbin is, uh, did, Robin, did you just say it happens on New Year's Day? It happens on the eighth day. Oh, on the eighth day. Uh-huh, on the eighth day. And, and he, that's also the day that he would receive his name. Um, I, I guess for me, baptism becomes a similar but different kind of, um, uh, particularly if you're a baby, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're baptized, because I think that's a recognizing that this baby is God's and then joining, joining him to the community. The purpose is a little different, but I think maybe some of that would some of the significance of the firstborn would continue? I don't know, Carl. Do you think so? Uh, I think I think so. I'm, I just got caught up because we had a question last week, which I want to. I think we have an opportunity to answer really quickly, which is Daniel said the surprising thing um, that he had learned as a child that New Year's Day falls on New Year's Day because it would be the eighth day after oh, Jesus' birth. Yeah. Yes. Therefore, the presentation yeah. in the temple. And uh, so I, I, I did a little bit of digging, as I said I would. And, of course, that makes no sense at all. Because there's actually no uh, nothing to say that Jesus was actually born on December 25th. Jesus is, well, actually, the, most people, uh, most biblical scholars say it was in April, right. wasn't it, actually? Right. And that we took over a, a pagan holiday 
Um, yes, the winter equinox winter solstice. or the winter yeah, solstice. Winter. I guess I'm yeah, winter solstice. Yeah, and and layered our Christmas and our Christian um, things on top of that, which we've done with a number of other holidays. So I, I think April was when he actually would have been born. So the day would have been a different, totally different. Yes. Day. And uh, mm-hmm. my understanding is January 1st was set for New Year's Day by Julius Caesar in 45 BC. So before the birth of Christ. So mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with us. <laughs> my, my childhood has been ruined right in this moment. It's, you know, yeah. yeah. That, that is, that's really uh, what we're here for. And I'm glad we fulfilled <laughs> our, uh, our obligation to you. <laughs> yes. Yes, every and every Wednesday morning I tune in to have my childhood destroyed. Really. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, Daniel, are you a firstborn? Just uh... Uh, I am a firstborn, and actually, there continues to be a widely ignored, uh, outside of the Orthodox world at least, practice that emerges from this text right here. Uh, that the firstborn, and it's actually exactly the description that we have uh, in this chapter of the Torah, it is the first fruit of a woman's womb. Uh, There's a special ceremony that's done where rather than dedicating that child to the priesthood uh, to go work, uh, there is actually a token fee that is paid to the descendant of a uh, uh, priest. So uh, uh, Jews who have the last name Cohen or Kohane uh, are often descended from the priestly class. And uh, so you'll have these rituals in the synagogue where the family will give uh, basically a silver dollar to the priest uh, or to someone whose family claims to be uh, priestly in lineage uh, as a part of the naming ceremony. Okay. Interesting. So there's this consistency and coherence um, that that continues then. Yeah, and much like we'll see in this chapter here, actually, it is only if it is the uh, firstborn Firstborn. uh, fruit of the womb. So if a woman has a miscarriage, uh, then the first baby that is born alive is not... not the firstborn. Not considered the firstborn. Uh, if a woman has other children and it's the firstborn to uh, the father, it doesn't count. Uh, and actually today, if it's a cesarean section, it does not count. Oh. So then a woman could have five children and have no firstborn if they were all cesarean? Correct. Wow. Wow. Correct. Huh. Uh, and if your family claims lineage from the priests. You don't do this. And, uh, my family at least claims this. So, uh, uh, I did not do this. So is that, so I know the term Corbin, uh, from, from later biblical studies. Is that what we're talking about here? The idea that you have to, your, that your firstborn belongs to the temple and then you have to pay a certain amount to get them back. So that's the concept. We wouldn't call it the Corban here, because a Corban almost always refers to some sort of sacrifice, uh, okay. Though interestingly, you know, the, I don't know where we get the word sacrifice for in English, because the notion of korban doesn't have any sense of giving something up. It actually comes from the Hebrew of karov, which means to draw near. Uh, these are supposed to be activities that draw you near to God, as opposed to uh, self-sacrificing moments. Huh. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know the etymology of sacrifice in English. Um, I don't either. So I suppose I could look it up quick, but we should go on. And, and if I find it, I'll, I'll report. Okay. 
So should I keep reading at three? Sure. Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Keep going. Yeah, only that, I guess my only comment here is, it's so interesting to me how quickly the conversation turns away from what has happened towards how this should be remembered and how this should be taught. Well, I think there's this connection that runs all through this chapter where we hear this phrase, remember this day, and that remember occurs several times. And then when you get to the land, you'll do this. And it seems to be tied to your memories and your past. And then we're, because of that, enacting this these liturgical acts that are going to help us remember and point us to the future. And then we are telling our children. So there's this connection that runs all through uh, to me about what we are supposed to be doing or what they are supposed to be doing because they're remembering. Mm. So the consecration is because they're remembering that their babies didn't get killed. Um, so they technically belong to God. And, and we're remembering that God brought us out of Egypt and we're remembering that we're not in slavery. And, and then we're enacting all of that in this, in these liturgical, um, festivals or feast. Hmm. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Okay. So today in the month of Abib, is that, Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, you know, I don't know why these get changed to bees instead of V's. In Hebrew, it would be Aviv, oh. uh, which is actually the Aviv. word for spring. Okay. Today in the month of Aviv, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. So just a, a pause of note here um, that might be interesting to people. We get so used to hearing this phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, that uh, it's actually not talking about milk or honey that we would recognize. We're talking about uh, goat milk and honey that comes from a date. Uh, so actually, if you if you pay attention, you will discover... Uh, all sorts of biblical art that doesn't look biblical. It's a picture of a goat with its two feet sort of on the trunk of a, uh, a date palm and the date mm-hmm. dripping into its mouth. If you, if you look for it, you'll see it all over, whether it's on uh, sort of vases from antiquity or uh, my grandmother, I feel like, had a, um, gosh, it must have been a felt painting, I think, of this, you know, right next to uh, right next to Elvis, I guess. Um, uh-huh. uh, but you'll see the symbol, and so often people uh, miss it and don't think of it as a biblical symbol uh, because neither the goat nor the dates – strike us as milk or honey. Huh. But the meaning is the same though, right? When we, when we think about the land with lots of goats and lots of figs and dates and so forth, it's a land that's going to feed us. So, so the meaning that we would still take from that phrase, milk and honey stands with that new image that you're giving us. Is that, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in some senses it's, I think a, um, 
a better image. Yeah, wealthier, more luxurious image, right? It's not the honey yeah. that you got to fight bees for. It's the honey that's just growing on trees. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, wow. Highly, highly recommend this honey, by the way. You can, you can still find it usually in a Middle Eastern grocer. If you're looking for this product, you can usually find it under, I think it's called Silan, S-I-L-A-N is how it's normally spelled. Okay. May I just note that this is the second week in the row we've gotten gourmet food tips from you, Daniel. <laughs> how to buy hummus. Yeah, I think it was hummus. It was hummus last week, yeah. Yep. Uh, my recipe of choice for this, for what it's worth, is uh, eggplants roasted in half with date honey and uh, tahini Ooh. poured on top. It's delicious. Ooh, Ooh, that sounds delicious. delicious. Huh. I may have to go to Lavash on my way home. They, or stop by my house any Friday night. It's a Shabbat regular for us. All right. Um, starting at seven, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your child on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve for you a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall keep this ordinance at its proper time from year to year. Okay, let's uh, let's stop there um, because I believe, uh, Daniel, you can tell us a little bit about the um, the sign on the hand and the sign on the forehead. The sign on the hand and the sign on the forehead. Yeah. So this is a uh, this is turned into one of the most significant of Jewish ritual objects. We call them uh, tefillin, uh, though they're called phylacteries in English, I believe. They are. Yes. I've, yes. Uh-huh. I've never understood why we didn't keep the original Hebrew. It's so much easier to say than phylacteries. Um, tefillin. Uh, and it's really, I think, one of the most distinctive Jewish prayer customs that on weekdays, not on the Sabbath or on holidays, uh, Jews uh, wrap themselves. Uh, a, a box actually is, is produced. It has to be made of animal leather, just like a Torah scroll. Uh, and within it is a scroll with these verses written upon it. Uh, and you literally bind them to your arm into your forehead as a part of a morning prayer practice. Yeah. Huh. And, and, and that continues today, yes. Continues today. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, scholars uh, sort of always assumed that what we think of as tefillin came out of about 500 CE, so 1,500 year, years ago. Um, there was a sense that this was must have been something very different in antiquity. And then during the digs at Qumran of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they discovered copies of tefillin that literally stitch for stitch are identical to how they are constructed today. Wow. Oh, huh. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of my favorite uh, ritual activities. And part of it is that it's just so beyond the realm of the rational. Right. There's So, yeah, go on. I, I was just going to say you have this sense of it being something visceral and physical and emotional and spiritual, but it, you know, it makes no rational sense to have these sort of funny leather boxes tied to you. Right. Except that it keeps it close to you and, and serves as a reminder. Yes. yes. And that's certainly the goal. 
that's certainly the goal. Mm -hmm. So it would be the same as as a Christian, we would say we're putting something into our hearts. But then as a sign, maybe we've got on like I've got on today a cross that's over my heart. I belong to religious order and that cross reminds me of the vows I made and the promises that I made when I joined that order. So it sounds like a, a not the same thing, but a related kind of practice that that is a physical reminder of something that's spiritual um, and also a reminder of a past event that's important for Jews. Yeah. Would that be accurate? Yeah, exactly. And actually, you uh, while you're wrapping them around your arm, uh, you say a line from uh, Hosea. Uh-huh. Uh, and I will bind myself onto you forever. I will bind myself in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and compassion. Um, See, I think that elevates the significance even more hmm. to what you're doing physically. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just about living inside the word. Uh, there, there's an ethical, moral reminder uh-huh. intrinsic in it. Ideally, whether that actually translates is a different question, I think. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So so now we have the chosen people getting their instructions, uh, binding the word um, to their to their foreheads to their hands. Um, the word that they're binding, though, at this point, has it actually been articulated to them? So. Like, I'm not sure it's clear here. Um, You know, certainly Jewish tradition would say that, yes, it is, uh, that it's the exact same thing. And actually Jewish tradition says that these tefillin, that even God wears these tefillin when God is praying. Huh. Huh. Um, (laughs) That's an interesting image. That flashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll talk about it more when we get there. But it it comes from that image of uh, uh, Moses asking to see God's face, and God says that he can see his backside. And the rabbis say, "What is it that God is seeing, or what that Moses is seeing? Moses is seeing the knot on the back of God's tefillin." Huh. Wow. <laughs> huh. The the other thing that connects here to me that's interesting is this notion that you shall tell your child on that day. And and you're not only are you binding something to yourself, but you are continuing to pass this on. And it's your responsibility to make sure that your child understands. And then I'm assuming his child and his child and, and her child and her child that this is what the Lord did for me. So this is why we're doing these things. It's it's yes, it's a physical ritual. Yes, it's a feast we're going to do. Yes, we're going to eat a certain way and 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 tell certain stories and scriptures on this day. But this is why we're doing it. And I think it's so important when we do anything religious, either for Jews or for Christians, that we understand why we're doing it uh, rather than uh, allowing something just to become a rote. This is what we've right. always done. I totally agree. Um, mm-hmm. And actually it, this formulation of, and you shall explain to your child on that day, it is because of what Adonai did for me when I went out from Egypt. For anyone who's been to a Passover Seder before, you know, this is actually one of the main themes of the Seder, mm-hmm. that it has to be articulated that this happened to me that I myself experienced this, even though we're thousands of years from that moment, uh, that the idea is hopefully that this becomes a way of creating empathy with the vulnerable today. 
that mm-hmm. if we And I think that speaks kind of to our whole idea of why our bishop and Carl and the entire committee thought it would be important for us to read Exodus. I think that notion runs through of, of how we are looking at, respecting, and treating people today and, and remembering our own experiences, or even if we didn't have those experiences, acknowledging the experiences that other people in the world are having, and they are all our neighbors. I think that larger context in which we're reading Exodus has that, that runs through all everything that we're talking about in our parishes and throughout the diocese, I think are so important. Um, for our times right now and where we are in terms of how we treat other people. I agree. And I, I, I think there's also, uh, I'm trying to think about how to articulate this. Uh, I am a spiritual director and, and in spiritual direction, there's a lot of emphasis on individual story. Like what are people's faith stories? This is also true um, with uh, anyone who gets ordained in the Episcopal Church is you have to write a spiritual autobiography. I don't know if you have to do that as a rabbi, Daniel. I Never, though. I went on a retreat as a senior in college with an Episcopal priest who had us do that as an assignment. I still remember it as being one of the most meaningful things I've done. Oh, well, that's good to know. It is I have a, I'm not a spiritual director. I have a spiritual director. And one of the things that I had to do before I began working with her as part of the pre-work was write a spiritual autobiography. And I think anytime we do something like that, it causes us to tell our own story. Right. And in, in, in telling our own story, I think our stories connect and there's intersectionality with other stories. And I think it's important. And we revisit sometimes parts of that spiritual autobiography that I did sometimes in our, I go see her tomorrow. So I'm always thinking about what I need to talk to her or want to talk with her about. And it's always pieces of your story that you're sharing in spiritual direction and then looking at how you're going to pray. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 and I think that's true. Um, but one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is that we spend a lot of time emphasizing our individual stories. And I don't know if we're particularly good either in the Episcopal Church or in American culture in general in emphasizing and articulating the collective story. Um, I mean, I think in terms of our politics, it would be very helpful if we could – uh, come up with a collective story that we want to emphasize. But maybe one of the reasons we're so fractured right now is that um, the collective story that was there of these kind of righteous and good founding fathers who gave us this beautiful nation uh, has become problematic in in many ways. Um, but within the church, too, I don't know if we're all that good at saying this is the story of us and the story of me fits inside that story, um, but it's actually not the most important story. The story of us is actually more important. I think about two things as you say that. I know um, as an African-American growing up, my parents, uh, particularly my mother, always made sure we knew who we were, proud as Jacksons, huh? individually, but then also who we were in terms of the people that we had come from and the people that came before us. And she made sure we kind of knew this collective story. Um, 
as we sat and watched the news as a family, they talked about the news, put it in context of both history and what was trying to do. I watched them work, you know, um, in, in locally in our social justice um, organizations and so forth in our local community. And then um, she made sure we understood history. You know, you have to vote. This is what happened for you to right. be able to vote. You must vote. I've only missed one election in my entire life. Uh, and I hear my mother, I heard my mother, and I couldn't get to, there was an accident, I was in a car accident. And I heard my mother's voice, though, still telling me, you have to be there to vote. And um, and, and I, so I think about that in my own family and this collective story. And I also think about um, Alex Haley and uh -huh. Roots and how so many of us maybe can't trace back very far um, with our personal families, but how that collective, that Alex Haley's story became our collective story. And that whole notion of the griot, G-R-I-O-T, um, the African storyteller or poet or musician whose responsibility it is to um, keep those stories in the oral tradition and tell those stories. And then the chills that you get when Alex Haley, both in the book and in the movie, hears the griot repeat the story that his grandmother and relatives had mm. told him. I even just thinking about it, I get chills and I can't do that in my family very far back, but for, he did it for all of us as a collective story. And I think in acts, we see the church yeah. telling the story over and over. We just have not continued to do it as much, Carl, as you're, as you're saying. And I think that um, Jewish people continue to tell that story regularly of the events that we're talking about in this chapter right. uh, and, and, and the, the whole book of Exodus. I think they continue at the Seder and at other events, the story's told, and we don't consistently do that. Right. We, we do maybe during the Easter vigil. That's probably our prime moment yes. for storytelling. Yes. But uh, that is, you know, that's not a hugely well-attended service. I mean, it is. But and even that, we... Even that we truncate we because I think aren't there ten yeah. scriptures for that possible? And each each vigil I've been to, we've done three or right. four, and so we're still not telling the entire story. That's right. You know, it's interesting in the uh, <clears throat> excuse me in the American Jewish world where traditional Jewish observance is radically changing. Uh, some would say radically disappearing. Uh, the observance that continues to be uh, uh, more practice than anything else is going to a Passover Seder, going to a r ritual retelling uh, of this story. And if you've been to a Seder, you know that it's almost always sort of one third the Exodus story and two thirds what's happening in the world right now. Right. And, and there's right. an overt notion that, that the story is being told only for the sake of giving us a sense of having been the oppressed so that we can have empathy with the oppressed. Right. Yes. Um, yes. Well, shall we continue on? Okay. So we are. Verse huh. 11, I believe. Verse 11. Okay. Um, when the Lord has brought you into the land of Canaanites, as he swore to your, you and your ancestors and has given it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, 
All the firstborn of your livestock that are males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. When in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You shall answer, by the strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh re stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from human firstborn to the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord every male that first opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall serve as a sign on your hand and as an emblem on your forehead that by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So first thing I want to say uh, is that is actually the end of this section for Jewish divisions. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, okay. so we, we read the entirety of the Torah of the five books of Moses over the course of a year. Uh, so, uh, -huh. uh, the readings are divided up by the number of weeks in any given year. And that is the end of one week's reading. And the next verses would begin the next week. Okay. So, but they're in the same chapter. They're in the same chapter, but the chapter divisions end up being, are yeah, and they're added in later than the divisions of what is read on what week, which, uh, goes back probably to the time of Jesus or so. Yeah. It would make sense to me to end there because the next section kind of ends what you all last week talked about in terms of that priestly material. Right. And it goes back to narrative. Right. So it makes, it makes a good ending place right there. Uh, so the, the sort of word that stood out to me too, uh, in verse 15, but you shall redeem the firstborn of every male, uh, uh firstborn among my sons, excuse me. And I, I think it's worth looking at this, uh, to better understand what it is that the Torah means by this word redemption. Uh, so I guess my question for you all is how, how is this understood traditionally in Christian context? What does redemption mean? Well, <laughs> this, this could become quite a long, uh, description. I, I would say, Daniel, and I, we might've touched on this before, but I would say that, uh, for us, redemption is deeply tied to the cross. However, you want to think of that. Um, so, and to the resurrection and Robin, you might have uh, a different or more nuanced understanding, but just a literal meaning, I would think of it as a buying back. Yeah. Like slaves were re redeemed in the, in, in the old Testament, um, simply by purchasing them or buying them. Well, back. yeah, and and they were redeemed in the early church too. That's how one of the ways the church rose to prominence, particularly in like Gaul, you know, what became France, was um, that bishops like Martin of Tours would buy back those who had been captive captured by uh, by some of the tribes that were around there. So, yeah, there's that there's that understanding of redemption. Um, so, the, so then in terms of us being uh, purchased, quote unquote, by sin, we get redeemed or purchased back by the death of Christ, as Carl's saying, on the cross. And not only us, but the whole world. Like there is a very yes. cosmic understanding. Creation as yeah. well, yes. Um, I, Robin, I have to say. I and ironically, I'm sorry. 
I was going to say, ironically, um, Judas paid what was supposed to be the traditional price of a slave. Judas was paid that amount to betray Jesus, that oh, traditional redemption of a slave. Uh-huh. 30, 30 pieces of silver. And I'm not sure what that would equal, but scholars say that that amount was the traditional amount to redeem a slave. If I'm redeeming a slave from my family or something. So I think that's an interesting connection. So Robin, I have to tell you, I think I've been explained uh, the Christian concept of redemption, you know, two dozen times in my life. And I think this is the first time I have understood it. So thank you. Huh, that's good. Oh, Okay. Well, we don't, there's lots more. I think like Carl said, we could have a whole, whole day's workshop on redemption. Right. Right. I mean, and, and I I think one of the problems that the point in my life that I am currently in is um, I've become much more interested in resurrection as a form of redemption in a way than the cross. Um, Mm -hmm. But that too would take some explaining. I, I just to say, but you can't have resurrection without right, the cross. Exactly. So there are two there are two ways that Christians walk. One is the via crucis, the way of the cross, which is a way of of stripping away the old self and allowing those things within you that need to die to die. Um, and then the others is the via lucius, the way of life, which is coming into the new self. Um, yeah, practicing resurrection. practicing resurrection, and and to me these are cycles that repeat. You know, so you'll come into a version of the new self, but there will still be things that need to die. So you'll find yourself walking the way of the cross again, regardless. Uh, but to me, the redemption is that process essentially, right? It's this kind of continual uh, stripping away and um, welcoming of the death of the old self to come into the new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Continually waking up and arising That's again. Right. That's right. Every yep. day. That's right. Every minute. Right. And, and I think Daniel, that, that one of, for me, one of the problems with the traditional understanding of redemption is just being something that is accomplished on the cross by Christ is it does have the, it has an effect of somewhat letting us off the hook. It becomes so cosmic and so universal that the part we play in that um, gets forgotten. Mm-hmm. So huh. anyway, that's yeah. all I have to say about it really. Oh, that, that was really interesting. Thank you. Sure. So redemption here in terms of the animals, talk to us a little bit about that, Daniel. I, you know, I guess to me, this is the classic Jewish understanding of redemption, which is, returning things to the way that they always should have been. Ah. There's a, a, a beautiful phrase in Hebrew. We actually, when we uh, ritually take the Torah out of the ark that it's held in and read it, when we're putting it away at the end, the very final lines are, uh, menu keketem, renew us. The, the straight translation is renew us, uh, renew us in our days as in the days of old. But the interesting thing about this word, keketem, as in the days of old, is that kedem both means the past and it means progress. Hmm. So it is both a future-looking word and a past-word-looking word. Um, and so there's this... So the past improved. Exactly, an improved version of the past. Um, so it's it's not make Israel great again. It's sort of... 
um, make Israel what it always should have been and could have been. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in Judaism, who is to blame for it not being uh, the way it should have been? Sorry, we don't have a concept of original sin in Judaism. Uh, mm -hmm. And in fact, the whole garden story is not understood as being a fall, but instead sort of a natural human evolution. It's the move from toddlerhood to adulthood with okay. the knowledge of morality and good and evil and uh, the awareness of our own nudity and um, all of these sorts of things. Uh, and in the same way that most of us would never wish a toddler not to become an adult, uh, the garden story is not understood as a fall, but as a moment of somewhat sad, somewhat nostalgic um, growing up. Um, so the notion of redemption in Judaism then is about uh, collective redemption. It's not individual at all. Uh, and so when we talk about praying for redemption, we are talking about praying uh, traditionally, at least in the Jewish context of once again, being a people who are free in our own land to worship our God, as we understand it, um, that, huh. that the world should be restored to the order that it always should have been in. In a way it should be restored to the promise, um, to the, that is being exactly. played out in the Exodus narrative, right? So it should be restored to the promise that was given to Abraham and that we're seeing enfleshed in, in Exodus. Exactly. And that's mm -hmm. that Kaketam idea, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's as it w should have been in the past, not necessarily as it ever was in the past. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. um, so you're not actually going back and looking at the past with rose-colored glasses, but recognizing things that were right and things that could have been better. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, yeah I think that's really okay. true. And recognizing... You know, let me say it a little differently. My my favorite uh, uh, Bible teacher, a guy named Micha Goodman, brilliant, brilliant guy, uh, likes to say that the Bible is the story of how the Jews messed up when we had power in the past. Huh. Huh. That, that it's not the story of what we should emulate. It's the story of what we should watch out for. Right. Huh. Okay. So, so basically, there's no original sin, but there's a collective failure to keep covenant and to uh, live into the promise as it was given. Exactly. Exactly. Is the view that that comes through disobedience? Is that is that failure viewed as a disobedience? Sometimes it's a disobedience, uh, right? I mean, that's certainly the response you get in something like uh, Jeremiah, who explains the devastation of the... Uh, destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and the carting off of his people into slavery uh, understands this is fundamentally being the fault of the Jewish people. Um, uh -huh. So sometimes there are explanations like that. Uh, but it's a collective responsibility, a collective it, failure. Exactly. Collective disobedience. Exactly. Okay. There is no sense in Judaism of my responsibility ending at the limits of my life. Um, and there's a real sense that the individual can mess things up for the collective and the collective can mess things up for the individual. But that, um, as the classic saying goes, no man is an island. Hmm. Huh. Mm -hmm. 
And interestingly, you know, one of the, one of the really problematic parts we find it in Deuteronomy, it's part of the daily prayer is this notion of if you keep the commandments, uh, the rain will come in its season and you will flourish. Mm-hmm. And if you don't keep the commandments, you will not get the rain and your family will starve to death. Uh, yeah, there's a whole chapter of those blessings and curses and, and all of that. Exactly. Um, exactly. But that's still viewed as a collective. As yes. Exactly, as a collective. And mm-hmm. uh, so today, many Jews across the denominational spectrum understand this theologically as a lens on climate change. Hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. There's a whole Bible, a Christian... Um, um, I forget the exact name of it. I think it's called uh, the Green Bible, yeah. but I think yep. you you know what Bible yeah, I'm talking I about. It. Mm-hmm. Do you have one? I have a devotion that goes with it. Father Charles, my priest, has one, but it's kind of interesting in that, uh, just like we have Bibles, uh, Daniel, with the words of Christ in red, um, this particular Bible has all of the verses that deal with stewardship of the earth, with uh, taking care of the earth, with our responsibilities for that. All of them are in green. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting, it's, I think it's just called the, is Carl, is it just called the it green is. Bible? Yeah, it's the green yeah, Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it, that whole, the whole Bible, the whole focus from beginning to end, that's the focus of it. Uh, okay. Amazon's about to get my money for this. <laughs> So the podcast is costing you money. Exactly. Um, Okay. So shall we continue? Yeah. Let's conclude this chapter. All righty. We're starting at 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt, prepared for battle. Okay, so I think we have to pause here uh, to talk about maybe the most famous uh, biblical scribal error or translation error that uh, I know of, at least, uh, which is the idea that it is the Red Sea. Someone left an E off. Uh, it is mm-hmm. in the Hebrew is, is clear. It is the reed sea. Right. And my Bible has in the footnote here that it is the sea of reeds. The sea of yeah. reeds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if for Christians that would be the most significant scribal error, uh, but, but it would be a little controversial to say which, which I think the most significant scribal error is. Well, it actually creates a difference in the geography though, doesn't it? So we're, we're, I know one of the adult forums you have on the website, Carl, um, um, yeah. was a gentleman who talked a video yep. that talked about the geography of Exodus. And, and that error changes where some of these things mm. happen. Mm. Yeah, that video is yeah. by Deacon William Sangray. Yeah, yeah. We watched that in our, in our um, adult for- forums early. It was one of the early ones that we watched. And, and that was very interesting for us. Um, and no one knows where this Reed Sea is, if I'm correct, right? So if it's not the Red Sea, there was a sea of reeds somewhere out there. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. where that actually is, is uh, ongoing geographical mystery, I believe. Right. And I guess for me, I think the ge- geography of it all was interesting. Uh, but one of the discussions we had at the time was um, 
did the geography and, and where it was actually change the significance of the fact that no matter where it was, God saved his people as they went through this sea. Right. And that became the important part for us, although we thought the geography of it all was interesting. And it, at least in the Jewish tradition, actually, the notion that the geography is unclear is part of the point. That the whole idea is that okay. this is happening in the wilderness, in the in the sort of most classic sense of that notion of wilderness. And there's a, you know, there's a reason, for instance, that Moses ends up being buried in the wilderness and being, ends up being buried in a place where no one knows. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, right. And, and I like the fact that we're introducing the theme of wilderness. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it, it becomes so important and it will just continue to be important uh, for the Christian spiritual life. And I don't know beyond the Exodus narrative, what its importance is for the, for the, for Judaism. Um, but for Christians, Daniel, I, I would say wilderness is a prime metaphor, uh, for stripping away and, and also the place where you go to meet the demons. Uh, it's a place of mm-hmm. struggle, uh, with the self and with God and with your relation to your society. Um, sometimes also preparation too. That's right. And preparation. Yeah. That trial and that meeting the demon sometimes is a preparing you for what comes next. And I think we had Moses in the wilderness before he comes back to yeah. Egypt, you know, and I, I think all that served when he was with Jethro, I think all that served as preparation for then the next time he was in the wilderness leading a group of people. Right. You had some interesting midrash, though, on this notion of God um, um, taking the people in a roundabout way, too, you were sharing with us, Daniel. Uh, I believe you I was. Now I'm trying to remember uh, uh, what my roundabout midrashim were. Uh, well, it's uh, uh, Midrash Rabbah. Right. God did not lead them through the way of the Philistines. So the tribe of Ephraim oh, had erred. Yeah. And departed from Egypt 30 years before the destined time, with the result that 300,000 of them were slain by the Philistines, and their bones lay in heaps on the road. God therefore said, if Israel sees the bones of the sons of Ephraim strewn in the road, they will return to Egypt. Thus the verse says, V'lo nachom Elohim, which can also be translated as God was not comforted. Okay, I, we, we have is, to pause to give Carl credit for that Hebrew reading right there. That was very <laughs> impressive. Very, very impressive. I was impressed. I'm getting better and better at faking it. Are you faking it well, my friend? <laughs> okay. Uh, it goes on. This is comparable to a king whose sons were carried off as captives, and some of them died in captivity. The king afterwards came and saved those that were left while he rejoiced over those who survived. He was never comforted for those who had died. Um, Daniel is is the, ti- the tribe of Ephraim like a lost tribe? Is that why they're they're cited here? I, well, certainly many of them end up uh, dying here. Is the notion? Uh, but I love this idea actually at the end that we get with the um, sort of the, the classic midrash, the the parable of the king. Uh, Mm-hmm. Right. The first part seems to imply that the reason they didn't go that way is that the Jews would see the bones of their compatriots and say, oh, look what happened to them when they tried to flee slavery. It's going to happen to us now, too. But the parable seems to say that actually it's God who couldn't bear to see those bones. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a verse in scripture that says uh, each death is precious to God. It kind of makes me think about that verse. And right now I can't tell you where mm-hmm. it is. I think, I think it's in one of the Psalms. Um, but this notion that God weeps over um, our failures, our losses, our deaths, our when things aren't going well for us, he weeps. And I, I just find that comforting. Um, Absolutely. In all circumstances. Absolutely. So we get another explanation for why, uh, uh, why we're going on these wanderings rather than uh, uh, going the direct route. Uh, again, compared to a king who had a son, he wished to bequeath an inheritance, but he argued, if I give it to him now that he's small, he will not know how to take care of it. I will therefore wait until he studies the writings and com- comprehends the values of the property. Then I will bequeath it to him. This is what God said. I shall first give them the Torah and then bring them into the land. Hmm. And this is the notion that, right? This was a group of people who were ready to be free, but God's purpose was not there to free them. God's purpose Hmm. was to free them so that they could do something in the world. Mm -hmm. Freedom is not the goal. Freedom is the tool here. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the land, we need to know how to act and what we're supposed to do. So before I take you, I'm going to give you the Torah as your guidebook. Right, exactly. If we're going to get our own country and then we're going to make the same mistakes that every other people made, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Right. And then wasn't the notion also that as a model um, Jews were to be a model of, of a relationship with God and, and how to have that relationship and what that meant to be also in relationship with, with each other. Isn't that part of what we get in that original promise um, uh, in Genesis 12 that God makes to Abraham, that they were going to be his family, his descendants, that nation that he would become would be a blessing to all the families, all the nations of the world. So in order to do that, we had to look at what the Jews were doing. Is that a fair statement? So, you know, I think it's interesting. This is one of those places where the distance between Christianity as a religion and the Jewish people as something a little different shows up. Ah, that, okay. um, I would say yes. And, uh, with the okay. and being that fundamentally, I think most Jews don't understand our purpose in being a light onto the nations as being a guide for how to be in relationship with God, but instead mm-hmm. a guide for how God wants us to live in the world. Oh, okay. uh, that it's much more about being a model for how we treat each other than it is a model for relationship with God. the divine. Um, Ah, And that, in fact, the relationship with the divine itself at some level also is utilitarian in that it serves the purpose of showing us how we are supposed to relate in the world. Hmm. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. I don't don't know if that's all that different from Christianity, however. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I I believe that our relationship with the divine is also supposed to show us how we Mm -hmm. should live in the Mm -hmm. world. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that gets forgotten. Yeah, Jesus sometimes. tells us on the night before he dies that we are to love. He changes the commandments that 
uh, we're to love each other as, as uh, we want to be loved, but we're to love each other as he loved us. So then that, that kind of goes along with what you're saying. This is what you're supposed to be doing in the world. Oh, wow. The way that I treated you is what you're supposed to be doing in the world. Don't do. And, and that's that. I think that's a, a wise thing on his part, uh, because some people, I don't want them to love me the way they love themselves. Right. You know, and I, I, I think he recognizes in his wisdom that you, we don't do that very well. And so here's what I want you to do. You love as I loved you. That's your that's your standard. Hmm. 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 Oh, that was beautiful, Robin. Hmm. Yep. Okay. So, oh. so do we want to go on to pillar or fire? Or do we want to look? Uh, do we have another midrash? Uh, let's uh, let's keep reading for a moment. Okay. So I think we left off at 19. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. They went out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So I, I don't know what to make of it, but there's a great midrash about Moses's, excuse me, about uh, uh, Joseph's bones, that just as they are leaving, uh, that Moses is told a tradition from Sarah, who is the daughter of Asher, uh, who had gone into Egypt. Uh, they say that she survived. She was sort of the, the, old, uh, the old woman with the inherited wisdom and the knowledge of all that had happened. She goes to Moses and tells him that Joseph's bones had been put into an iron coffin at the very bottom of the Nile. So Moses goes and raises up his staff and says, Joseph, Joseph, until the uh, uh, whole iron casket rises to the surface, at which point they go and take his bones. Uh, So I I don't know what to make of it other than I love the drama of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It makes a good movie. Exactly. Well, wouldn't she have to be alive for 400 years? Uh, well, you know, she took good care of herself. She, you know, had a Fitbit, did her 10,000 steps, right. 10,000 steps a day. They say it'll keep you alive. Exactly. Well, I, I mean, I, I think one nice thing we can make of it is um, that in this group story, uh personal memory actually does matter. So we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, personal story and group story. Um, But there are caretakers who are not just tradition, but actual voices who hold the group story for everyone and can fill in the gaps and tell things. And in a way, isn't that what the entire uh, Talmudic tradition is, is um, you're not just keeping the tradition um, you are adding to it from your own humanity mm-hmm. and filling things in and mm-hmm. revealing new things. Or am, am, is that just making hey, too much? Am I'm just, in. Love am it. Am I going off the rails again? Okay. <laughs> 
but but I don't think her living that long. I, and and you're right, she would have to have lived four hundred some years. But I don't think that's any more miraculous than Joseph um, answering and 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 rising up at this point. Um, I, I think it's 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 both um, kind of miraculous. But I like the fact that no matter how the bones got discovered or found that they're going back home. home. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Because if this wraps up that whole section, um, it it would be more like as if we continued Genesis and it ended here with Joseph going home, I think. Yeah. Right. The the whole Genesis story is left unfinished. It doesn't end the way it's supposed to. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, except that this is the promise kept. So what we are concerned with here is um, returning to the world or living in such a way as if the promises were always kept on both sides. We know that God does keep the promise. So that kind of goes back, Daniel, to that notion of redemption um, that you were talking about, where you're um, looking at how things should have been. Mm -hmm. Um, And so ideally... All of these experience that um, Joseph's family, because this, this these are Joseph's family that we have leaving out of Egypt. Uh, none of this was intended, you know. Originally, when they got there, the Israelites were welcome. They were given the best land. Joseph was highly respected. Things were good. Things were good. Things were good until there got to be so many people and were several pharaohs down, and then this fear. Um, enters in about, and then we make the, we make the Israelites become other, the other for, you know, up until that, everybody got along supposedly. So uh, it's this notion of now his bones are returning and the people are returning and, and, and things will ideally go back to, we know that's not quite what happens, but ideally go back to the way they, they should have been after the famine. So sort of jumping off of that, Robin, we're, uh, in the Jewish reading of the Bible right now, of the Torah, uh, we're right in the middle of the Joseph story. And I was just reading a brutal commentary that was talking about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the pieces, I don't know how I had never noticed it before, but the end result of this is that all of the property and the wealth becomes owned by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's court. This is a, this is a uh, massive increase in what we'd now call uh, wealth inequality. Yes. And the connection between deep inequality, systemic inequality, and the willingness to vilify and blame a vulnerable minority for the problems of a society. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. right? This was a critique of Joseph that I saw because it was Joseph's idea that, that in some ways it's Joseph's plan that leads to the demonization of the Jewish people. But, but, in, but in, in, in originally wasn't the plan that we're planning ahead for the famine and then all of that wealth was to be redistributed? You know, I, I don't think you find that in the text. 
Huh. That may be our hope of how it's going to happen. Uh, and I had never noticed this before, but if you do a close reading of the text, you can see that the end result of this is that all of the wealth ends up in the hands of Pharaoh and his court. Yeah. 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 I had never thought, never looked at it that way. I always looked at it. Oh, this is a good plan. Everybody's going to have everything they need when the famine hits. But that's, that's a, an interesting way to look at it as well. That it begins the, what we're calling as we go through this reading, this Egypt system, uh, political, economic and social system, Mm -hmm. uh, that Pharaoh represents. Huh. I never, that's interesting. I have to go back and reread that today. It blew me away when I saw this. Um, yeah. And that's one of Walter Brueggemann's points. Uh, so, so listeners, if you're looking for a, a Christian scholar saying the same thing, Brueggemann is, is the place to go. Okay. 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 Are we? I think that was chapter 13. All right. Well, way to go, team. Any final thoughts? Well, um, I, I'm going to go home and reread the famine, the seven um, – weeks of famine and, and look at that story again. Um, I, I'm just struck um, as we read all of Exodus, but more so I think in this chapter, this notion of remembering what has happened, um, remembering what God has done, remembering what we've been through. And because of that, thinking about how we treat other people and letting that color and inform everything that we do. I just think that that becomes a much needed something that we need to mm. think about mm-hmm. um, in the, in this particular time in 2017. I concur. Amen. Remember. All right. Uh, well, Daniel have the, uh, have the marks of the phylactery worn off your skin at this uh, point? They have <laughs> worn out, uh, and now I'm going to go uh, gorge myself on some latkes. It's the uh, first day of Hanukkah. Oh, that sounds good. There we go. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I always enjoy being no, here. No, thank you, Robin. Fantastic. Uh, and I will just say as our outro, the, thank you for listening to Lost in the Wilderness. Uh, Lost in Wilder- the Wilderness is made possible by, uh, a, as a co-production of the Diocese of Southern Ohio and Christchurch Cathedral, um, and is edited by Carl Stevens and Daniel Bogart. And, uh, Daniel, where can people find you if they are seeking you online? If you're seeking me online, check out nojokeproject.com. Okay, and I can be found at prayerbookart.com. And Robin, is there a place where you want to send people to find you? Deeperwritingrobinholland.blogspot.com. There we are. All right, thank you, listeners. We will talk at you next week. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Bye.